Thank you, Mike, and welcome to today's webinar with Alan Murray about his provocative new book, Today's Tomorrow's Capitalist, My Search for the Soul of Business. You all probably listeners know about Alan, a distinguished career CEO now of Fortune Media. Uh, he writes a daily newsletter. I encourage you to get CEO Daily. He was with the Wall Street Journal for so many years. Uh, multiple author of multiple books, including Showdown at Gucci Gulf, Lawmakers and Lobbyists. I was just looking at this. This is Alan's second webinar with us. Uh, I don't know if there's symbolism to this, but our first webinar was with Alan Murray. Our second webinar, I mean, it was with Larry Summers. Our second webinar in a series was with Alan Murray. Um, uh, Larry Summers came back to explain inflation, and now um, Alan Murray's back. So I don't know if there's some sort of connection. But what I'm very much interested in, the first one he talked about the challenges to journalism today, because he's been such a leader there. And what's fascinating, today he talks about the challenges of business today, the subject of his book. Alan, would you like to say a few words or should we go right to it? Oh, dive in, Mark. I know you okay. have I know you here have great we, questions, so I'm getting here we go. The thesis of the book is how corporate CEOs have replaced shareholder with stakeholder capitalism. You write my journey into the world of stakeholder capitalism was driven by a journalist's curiosity, but over time it seems absolutely clear to me that something important is happening in the world of business. I was skeptical, Alan, until I read the last chapter confronting the skeptics and critics. I now know it's for real, especially for Fortune 500 CEOs. To prove you convinced me, please see your book. This is at, at our monthly salons where we bring together members of the press, politicians, and others. It was on ESG, and guess whose book is featured here. Um, Alan, since that was on on ESG. Um, what are your thoughts about uh, ESG? Uh, yeah, let, let me, yeah, let me lay a little groundwork uh, before, you know, ESG is a, is a fraught term with lots of definitional problems and now political overtones. But, but, but let me try and paint the big, bigger picture. And it, it just struck me, uh, Mark, you and I met in what, 1980, maybe? Certainly, the very early 1980s. Uh, 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 Forty years ago, my God! And and you think about the American Council of Capital Formation. So here's one of the most interesting facts that uh, I found in my research for the book, and I use in the book. If you go back to that time period, go back to the 1970s, and you look at the Fortune 500 companies, and you say, where is the value in these companies? You look at their balance sheets. What you will find is more than 80% of the value on the balance sheets of Fortune 500 companies is physical stuff. It's plant, it's equipment, it's oil in the ground, it's inventory on the shelves, all the things that you need capital formation to, to support, to create. And it sort of makes sense that in that environment, you pay a lot of attention to returns to the people who are providing capital. But if you do the same exercise today with the Fortune 500 companies, what you'll find is more than 85% of the value on the books of Fortune 500 companies is intangibles. It's intellectual property, it's uh, computer code, it's brand connection with consumers, the emotional connection you've created through brand. 
all things that are less tied directly to capital and more tied to human beings, people, human connections with your employees, with your customers, et cetera. I think that's at the core of everything we're talking about here. I think companies by uh, the nature of their business are having to become much more human focused and human related and everything else grows out of that. Uh, Mike Burrito, you don't know this, but I'm now changing the name. It's called the American <laughs> Council for an, an Empowered Workforce, which yeah, is- Yeah, or, or, or a- That's perfect word. A-C-H-C-F, American Council for Human Capital Formation. Great. You know, a lot of people don't know- We'll that. edit your background. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people don't know the history of this movement from shareholder to stakeholder capitalism. And quite frankly, you played a role in it, a significant role. What do we have? A New York Times essay in 1970, which is even 10 years before we met, the famous essay by Milton Friedman, the only responsibility for a corporation is its shareholder. Then there's the famous December 3rd, 2016 meeting, when you, Alan Murray, gathered 100 titans of business and commerce in the house of God, followed by August 19th, 2019, by a restatement of the purpose of a, of a corporation by the business roundtable. And then a year later, Larry Fink's annual letter to CEOs. This is a, a just a throwaway question to you to explain what is going on here. Yeah, so I think it, it, it ties back to that uh, uh, hu increasing human focus of, of companies. Uh, a, a recognition that that we are in an environment where the job of the CEO is less about telling people what to do, more about motivating them, inspiring them, giving them a clear reason, a clear purpose for what they're doing, giving them a sense that they're a part of something bigger than themselves. You know, I, I've had the opportunity, Mark, and you know this, over the course of the last decade to interview literally hundreds of CEOs. I've probably interviewed most of the CEOs of the Fortune 500. And, and the reason that I got onto this was not because I was crusading or pushing for some sort of different way of doing business. It was because I was hearing them talk in very different ways than they had in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. And, and so I would ask, because I'm a skeptic by nature, I'm a journalist. And so when I would hear somebody talk about their the the, their increasing focus on social goals, on things we used to think of as government responsibilities, climate, hey, that's the government's job, training, oh, that's the government's job, social equity, why are you getting involved in that? When I would hear CEOs talk about this, uh, these things, which they hadn't talked about in the past, I'd say, why? What is it that's driving you to do this? Why are you doing these things? Why are you, you saying these things? And the first answer I always got was because my employees want me to. So, so there, you know, you mentioned Larry Fink, it's coming from investors, it's coming some from consumers now, but first and foremost, it is coming from employees. That moves me to, to a, a nice quote by you, and that's the word empathy. You, one word you write, use a lot, is one word that comes frequently, quickly to, to mind is empathy, which I can't remember hearing. 15 years ago, which is your point. And you mentioned Mark Weinberger, who grew Ernst & Young from 200,000 to 300,000. And whenever I, I hear about Mark Weinberger, 
the word is everybody likes Mark Weinberger, which I guess <laughs> is part of that. Now, the controversial, not controversial, but, but just a, a figure in our past is Jack Welch. And Jack Welch, of course, was the contrarian, who was the old CEO uh, who gave orders. Um, and uh, Mark Weinberger is no John Jack Welch for a variety of things. But in, in D, a CEO daily, you're getting backlash from your sort of description from, from uh, Jeff Imholt. So tell us if that's changed any of your... Well, the, the conversation around Jack Welch uh, has, has popped up again because of a new book written by David Gellis of the New York Times. I, you should have David on to your podcast. And David's a little younger than you and I are. Uh, I don't know that he uh, covered Welch uh, directly uh, and tends to lay at Welch's feet all the evils of late 20th century capitalism, you know, excessive focus on quarterly earnings, the rank and yank employment policies, uh, um, financialization uh, of business. Uh, he kind of uh, sees Jack as the evil mastermind behind all of those things. That's not the way I view it. But what was so interesting about reading the book is what it does remind you is that how much the business world has changed from when Jack Welch was CEO. You just can't run a company the way he did. Now, it's easy to car caricature that. I mean, Welch, as you know, put a big focus on um, on HR, on human capital, on, on people. But, but I don't think anybody ever used the adjective empathetic to talk about Jack Welch. Um, you know, and when you talk about people who who are dealing in the complex stakeholder environment that big company CEOs are dealing with today, a lot of them talk about empathy. It, it becomes really important. Let, let's take a, one of the most prominent and interesting examples of this that we've had recently, and that's the CEO of Disney, Bob Chapek. In I don't know, is it Chapek or Chapek? Do you know the correct? Oh no, just don't, don't know. Well, this it's the CEO of Disney who. Um, uh, you know, Disney has Disney is uh, uh, Walt, Walt Disney World is in Florida. Uh, Disney Studios is in Southern California, very different cultural places. And when the when the state of Florida passed a law restricting conversations about uh, sexual uh, identity or gender identity in schools, um, uh, there were a lot of the uh, creatives who work for Disney who said, you should say something. And Chappick's initial response was, I'm not going to get involved in that. I mean, I, I depend on the Florida state legislature and the Florida governor to thrive in Florida. I, I just want to stay out of this. Um, well, it, it, it turned out he couldn't. His creative employees, and, and this and Disney is a perfect example of the kind of company I was talking about a minute ago, right? It's all, it's all intellectual property. It's all human capital. It's the ability of really creative people to tell magical stories that make people want to watch. And that community in California felt very, very strongly about this. I would argue Chappick's failure there was a lack of empathy. He didn't understand that his own employees cared so deeply about this issue. So he thought he could get away by saying nothing they literally revolted. And if your value, if these are the people who are creating the value that your business is based upon, you can't just say, well, sorry, I don't care what you think. I'm, that's, I'm not going to do it. Um, and so eventually, after kind of two weeks of revolt, he felt compelled to, uh, to come out and, and make a statement against the Florida law. And the result is what happened, right? The Florida, Florida State Legislature 
pulled the plug on a, on a special uh, economic district that they, they had there in Florida. There, there are some CEOs who look at that and said, oh, well, he did the right thing in the first place. See what happened? He should have kept his mouth shut. But um, but I, I don't think that's correct. I don't think Chappick thinks that's correct. I think the the what was missing in that story is empathy, is an understanding that there is a group of his most valuable employees who in turn are his most valuable assets who felt so strongly because of their personal experiences that this Florida law was offensive to their very being, that they couldn't tolerate uh, Disney, which had always stood up for their rights and you know had, uh, has has taken a lead in creative depictions of 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 the LGBTQ community, um, said we're, we're you know th this is going to affect the terms of our employment. So. So I think that's a good example of what all this conversation about empathy is is about. When you have multiple stakeholders, you got to be in touch with them. You got to listen to them. You got to what 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 I think went wrong at Disney was that he didn't start a long time before that law in Florida figuring out who his most valuable stakeholders were and what they most cared about because you got to build up that trust and relationship before the crisis hits. Let's now go a step beyond the CEO. And I'm, I was just thrilled. I was just so happy when you said the following, that you're committed, you are a committed capitalist and you wrote, capitalism has proven itself as the best system to organize human activity, to create prosperity and to eliminate poverty. And then, unfortunately, you also say that the younger generation has some doubts. Only 42% of Gen Z Americans view capitalism favorably. But two things. One, I think Larry Summers has talked about that in the past, about how capitalism has dealt with poverty. And one of the things that, that you may not know of, you know, I try to run. I'm the slowest American in the world. But Mandela, after he got out, went to Davos. And he was getting ready to nationalize business. And the Chinese communists at that time was before the current administration said, no, don't do it. You, you need sort of a free market. Um, and that seems like your statement is very, very strong. But then you've got the Gen Z Americans. And we want to do what that statement says. What do we do about the Gen yeah. Z Americans? Well, that's a big part of, of what's driving this. Look, Mark, I, my own story, you know, we've known each other for a long time. I, in uh, 1990, 1991, I took a trip to uh, Eastern Europe with a group of uh, cabinet officers from the B uh, Bush administration. And we we had a meeting with uh, uh, Les Balcerowicz, who was the finance minister of Poland at the time. And I remember, and, uh, you know, I remember being in that meeting and one of the cabinet secretaries said to Balsarowicz, are you, as you emerge from communism, are you trying to come up with a third way, you know, some sort of blend of the communism you're emerging from and the capitalism you're emerging into? And it was Balsarowicz who looked at them and said, there is no third way. Capitalism is won, communism lost, we're, we're, we're all in on this. And it was a powerful moment. I don't think any of us ever imagined at that moment that we would somehow end back, end up back where we are today, questioning the efficacy of capitalism. 
Um, but we are, you're right, and it's happening among the younger generation. Uh, for me, a lot of this, uh, I started to hear a lot of this after the Great Recession, because that was a pretty dramatic market failure. And a lot of people said, hey, wait a minute, you know, this whole free market thing isn't working quite the way that we were taught it would. Uh, and if you'll remember Bill Gates, who was one of the greatest capitalists of the world, right? He was, it was his last year in 2008, his last year as CEO of Microsoft, he gave a speech in Davos saying, we need a more creative capitalism. Michael Porter, who was one of the great capitalist teachers in the world at the Harvard Business School, started talking about shared value capitalism. John Mackey, who had created this successful uh, 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 food chain, uh, started talking about conscious capitalism. Mark Benioff at Salesforce talking about compassionate capitalism. There was a sense among the capitalists that we needed a modifier, that they weren't doing this. All of them believed in it. All of them believed in capitalism. But that if we didn't figure out how to better demonstrate the benefits to society, they were at risk of losing their operating license. And I had like Fortune, you know, in 2016, I can remember a particular Fortune 50 CEO who said exactly those words to me. So we got a couple of, of years to show the world we can do this better than we're doing it now, or we risk losing our operating license. So that was a that was a big part of the motivation for what happened over the course of the decade as well. There, honestly, there are real gems uh, in your book. You wrote, quote, companies are set up to solve problems and CEOs are trained to do so. Government too often seems to be set up. Government too often seems to be set up to exploit problems for political gain rather than solve it. Obviously, I love it. Alan, go for it. And then before you answer I, a sort of a follow-up question. You come out for carbon tax. The business community by and large is for it. Politicians are, how do we get it done? We wanna solve problems. Do we have another visit to the Vatican? Maybe, look, look, Mark, you've dedicated your life to trying to solve problems in Washington, to bringing together reasonable people from both parties who are willing to sit down and talk about solutions. So you know better than I do that, and, and you have lived this, I, I feel like from when I arrived in Washington around 1979 to today, there's been pretty much a downhill slide in the ability to do what you do. Uh, no fault of yours, <laughs> but to be to find people of goodwill who are really willing to come together and actually talk about solving problems rather than taking positions that, that they think might give them an edge in the next election. So, so the problem-solving ability of governments, of the U.S. government in, in Washington, seems to me have, to have atrophied pretty steadily over the course of the last four decades. And, and that's another thing that's causing this change. Companies are saying, you know, companies that 20 or 30 years ago would have said, hey, the environment, that's a government problem. Training workers, that's a government problem. Addressing inequality in society, that's a government problem. Social equity, that's a government problem. All of those companies now are saying, hey, you know what? Uh, if, if we don't help fix these, it will threaten our existence in the long run. It may not threaten us in the next quarter or the next year, but we can't have a healthy co company if 
society, uh, you know, if 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 society is at war with itself, we can't have a healthy company if the planet is burning. So I think of the other thing that's motivating this is recognition of companies focused on the long term that they may have to do this because nobody else is. And that gets back to the point that I was making. You know, they're they are corporate leaders are problem solvers by profession. Uh, and that increasingly is distinguishing them from political leaders on both sides of the aisle. Let me, and I'm very cognizant of the time constraints, let me uh, raise one final question. And that is, I would call it woke politics and stakeholders. There's been legitimate focus on racism, environmental concerns and discrimination against women. And as you said, it should not be thought of as an attempt to appease liberal Democrats. I personally believe one of the biggest challenges for our democracy and economy is the alienation of the white, blue-collar, troubled American worker, the subject of J.D. Vance's hillbilly elegy. Please yep. correct me if I'm wrong, but this isn't talked about by many stakeholders, at least referenced in your book. Your thoughts, please. Yeah, I think it's a great question, Mark. Uh, look, this is the big disconnect in the stakeholder capitalism movement. Virtually every CEO I talk to said, recognizes this is happening. Uh, you know, there's pushback out there. It doesn't come from CEOs. It doesn't come from anybody running large organizations. This is their lived reality. They know it's happening. But what I hear consistently from them is, yeah, hey, in this world, we have to have values because our, our employees expect it. And we have to stand up for our values because our employees and our customers and even our investors expect it. And we're happy to do that, but we don't want to get involved in politics. And of course, how you have values and stay out of politics is a question that none of them have yet answered. So, uh, so I think it's a conundrum yet yet to be addressed. I do not believe the CEOs I talk to are doing this because they're woke or they're trying to play footsie with Elizabeth Warren. Quite the opposite. I believe they would prefer to stay as far away from politics as they possibly can. But when you start getting involved in these social justice and climate issues, you inevitably get dragged back, dragged back into politics. And I don't, I don't think they've quite figured out how to deal with that yet. It's not going to be simple. You go back to the the example of, of, of uh, Bob Chappick of Disney in Florida. Um, I, I research um, and I find a very unusual things when I research for the webinars. So I'm gonna do something now. It's a, it's a quote and let me, you may remember it, but you'll probably surprise that I'm gonna use it. So let me start. So when I was a nine-year-old, I was compelled to walk up and down the street in the neighborhood where I lived and ask people about what was going on in their lives. You know, their grandmother was visiting, they lost their cat and they won the swim meet. I took notes and then went home and wrote it all up in a newsletter. My mother would type it up using a special carbon paper. And then I had this jelly sheet printer so I could take the carbon copy, put it on the printer and run out about 30 copies. And I sold them in the neighborhood for five cents. Yes. Thank goodness you were compelled to do it. Um, and thank goodness you did so, because the rest of us wouldn't have benefited about not only your journalism, but your entrepreneurship, uh, and will continue to do so. So thank you, Alan. And everybody, please go out and buy this book. It is, it is, it, it is very important, especially in this time in our history. And I guess if people want to get your 
your newsletter, um, let me or you know. So on that note, Alan, any other thoughts? No, it's a, it's always a great pleasure talking to you and and talking to uh, your audience who are members of the newly renamed American Council for Human Capital Formation. Thank you, and have a good day, Alan. Thanks. Nice.